Amen. Friends, this morning we are in 2 Timothy 3, continuing our journey through the book of 2 Timothy. As we've seen thus far in the book, Paul is writing from a Roman dungeon to his disciple Timothy, who he's left at the church in Ephesus to be a pastor there and to care for the people there. He's writing to him. He wants him to fan into flame this ministry that he's been given And he wants him to do so by leaving this gospel legacy. This legacy of those who receive what he himself has received from Paul. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The teachings that Jesus left his disciples. And he says, Timothy, in order to do this, in order to leave this gospel legacy, you're going to have to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel by the power of God. We've seen thus far... Paul really focusing on these outward sufferings. Paul himself is in this Roman prison. He is suffering because of his unashamed preaching of the gospel under the hand of the Roman authorities. And now Paul is turning and saying, there's, there's not just these dangers from outside, but there's these dangers from within that you need to be aware of. You need to be keen to if you're going to faithfully discharge this duty, if you're going to faithfully leave this gospel legacy, if you're going to hold to the faith, and if your people are going to hold to the faith, you need to be aware, Timothy, of this danger. So Paul is writing to make Timothy aware of this danger. He says in verse 1, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. You see, this is going to get harder and harder, Timothy, he says. Be aware of this, In the last days, there will come times of difficulty or times of turmoil or times that are menacing. The same word here is used in Matthew to describe the two men possessed by demons who were so fierce that nobody could pass them. Fierce times, Timothy, are coming in the last days. But see, this wasn't just a warning for some time far off in the future. This was a warning for Timothy for now, at Timothy's time. How much more for our time? See, when the Bible talks about the last days, it's not some far off time when Paul writes about it. It's now, here. When Peter's preaching at Pentecost, he says, in the last days, God would pour out his spirit. And then God does, showing that the last days are here and now and have been since Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended to heaven. Even as we wait for his return, we are in the last days. So when Paul says, Timothy, I want you to be aware, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. He's talking about now. In Timothy's time and in our time, there will come times of difficulties. The last days will be troublesome. And the trouble is not a trouble of like plagues, not a trouble of wars, not a trouble of those kind of things. But the trouble he wants Timothy to be aware of is actually a trouble that comes from people. You see in verse two, he says, for people will be. These troublesome times are coming and people will be this way. And that will be the source of the trouble. What I want us to see as we walk through the text today is this warning that Paul is giving to Timothy and a warning that he's giving to us to beware of this danger. There's a false gospel that's at stake here. It's a false gospel of self-love, and it's a clear and present danger to God's people. As we walk through, we're going to see this false gospel of self-love on full display. We're going to see why it's so dangerous. 
And we're going to see that one of the things the false gospel of self-love does is it provides a fertile breeding ground for false teachers who come in and who prey on God's people. Paul wants to warn us of that this morning. And so we're going to look at this text and see and heed, Lord willing, that warning. Paul starts off by saying that there will be people that will be a certain way and that at the heart of this people, at the heart of this trouble caused by this people is self-love. In verses 2 to 4, which we're going to read again in just a moment, there's 17 different adjectives that Paul uses to describe these people. Whenever we see a list like this in God's word, we should be asking in our head, is this meant to be a list like we're supposed to compare these things and say, how are they different from one another? Or is this meant to be a list that we're supposed to say, what do these things have in common? What unites this list? Why did Paul list these 17 things and not something else? As we read this list, I want you to ask yourself, what do I hear in common? Look with me at verse 2. Paul writes, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're going to stop there. You hear in that list how many times the word love shows up. Over and over and over, right? Lovers of self, lovers of money, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Not loving good. Over and over and sandwiching this list, love is at stake. What Paul wants us to see here is in the last days, trouble will come and it will come from people with misdirected love. People whose love is askew. And at the heart of this misdirected love is a love that's directed towards self. People will be lovers of self. And away from God, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. At the heart of this trouble that's coming is a self-love. I want to be very clear about what Paul doesn't mean. He's not talking about the kind of self-respect that comes from the fact that you are created in the image of God. You and I are all created in the image of God. And because of that, human beings like you and I have inherent value that's worthy of respect. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the kind of self-love, notice, that loves pleasure rather than God. It's the kind of self-love that turns away from God and to something else as God. It's the kind of self-love that replaces self with God. Making yourself God or turning in on yourself and loving yourself first. Looking inward to creation and to yourself for your hope and happiness, significance and security. That's what Paul means by self-love here. I want to think with you for a minute. Why is self-love such a danger? Why is it so wicked? 
Think with me for a minute. We're not going to turn there, but I bet many of you are familiar with it. What is the greatest commandment according to Christ? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there is a twisted teaching out there that would take that and would say, ah, love your neighbor as yourself. That means you need to love yourself first before you can learn to love your neighbor. But that's not where Christ starts. That's not what Paul is talking about in here. The trick to loving your neighbor is not turning inward and loving yourself first. Self-love is so wicked because it violates the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then love your neighbor. See, the order that God designed us to be in is love God. And that in turn leads to love of neighbor. And what self-love does of the kind Paul is talking about in here is it starts with loving myself and then turns to neighbor. But what does it find? It finds envy. It finds slander. It finds strife, all those kind of things that come from interpersonal relationships with fellow sinners. If you start with self-love, you'll have nothing to deal with all of those. And so self-love, replacing God with self in the greatest commandment, ultimately leads to hating neighbor. That's the other thing that this list has. If we look back through it and think about this Not only does love appear so many times, but the ones that don't deal with love, the adjectives that don't deal directly with love, typically deal with broken relationships, right? For people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, Rather than lovers of God. See, that's the fruit of self-love. It's all of this kind of destructiveness that comes in to relationships between God and between one another. A Puritan author compares self-love to a hedgehog that's all soft on its belly, right? And it turns into itself and it's all comfy and cozy inside. But what's the outside like? It's, it's spiky, prickly. You can't touch it. Right? You've got to be very careful because you're going to get stabbed. That's what self-love does to us. It's nothing new though, friends. This isn't something that's invented in Paul's time. And even though it's very prominent in our time, it's not something that was invented in our time either. This is the original sin in the garden. Right? What did Adam and Eve do? They turned away from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they said, God is withholding some good from me that I deserve. And therefore, I'm going to take it for myself. I'm going to look away from God and I'm going to look to creation. I'm going to say, that's better. And that's more loving. That's what I need. And I'm going to take it. Friends, that's self-love. That's the kind of self-love that Paul is talking about. And what did it do for Adam and Eve? It destroyed their relationship with one another. And it destroyed their relationship with God. So Paul is warning us here that self-love is at the heart of these troublesome days. People who are consumed with self-love. This is bad enough, but when we turn to verse 5, we see that this is not the world that Paul is primarily talking about. This is actually the church. Look at verse 5. He continues his list, 
after saying people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Looking like they belong. Looking like they are religious. Looking like they are pious. Having the forms of godliness. Coming to church, singing the songs, giving in the offering, serving, maybe in a ministry, praying, holding their Bibles high, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Self-love ultimately leads to religious frauds, hypocrites, right? Self-love ultimately leads to hypocrisy, but religion isn't the problem. See, sometimes we would go in our culture, we, we make that observation that there's something wrong here. They have the appearance of godliness, but there's some power missing. And we say the problem is the religion. The problem is the appearance of godliness. They've just got too much religion and they need more of Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying here. He doesn't rebuke them for the appearance of godliness. All through the pastorals, we've seen the importance of godliness right? All through Titus, we saw that grace works to produce godliness in God's people. The problem isn't too much religion. The problem is that they have the appearance of godliness, verse 5, but what? They have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This is the true problem. Those who are consumed with self-love deny the power of godliness. The question we should ask is, what on earth is that power? Because Paul doesn't explain it. Not here anyway. One of the ways we can think about what is that power is to look at how else Paul uses that word in this letter. He's already mentioned it a couple times in chapter 1. Look with me at chapter 1 for a minute. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he mentions power a couple times right in a row. Chapter 1, verse 6. After talking about Timothy's faithful upbringing in the faith, he says this, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's Timothy's ministry. He says this, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he continues, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of this testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel How? By the power of God. Verses 9 to 10, friends, are expanding on that power of God. Who saved us, verse 9, and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Through the gospel. We could continue because Paul writes long sentences, but we're going to stop there. This power that is in mind, that Paul has in mind when he writes to Timothy, that these people have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power, is the power that's at the very heart of the gospel. It's power, first of all, it's power to save. At the very heart of the gospel is this power to save. It comes from first a power to make us aware of our desperate condition. We need the very bad news 
that we are sinners bound for an eternal hell because we have rebelled against the good God who created us. But it's also power to bring to us the very good news that though our condition is desperate, God himself has come down like we saw during worship. God himself has provided the sacrifice for us to reconcile us to him, to pay the penalty for our sins. God himself has saved us. Paul talks about this power of the gospel to save in Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 to 17. Just listen, he says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel itself is the power of God to save because it reveals the righteousness of God, which tells us we are lost, and the righteousness of God, which is manifest in Christ Jesus, which tells us we can be saved. The gospel is this power of God to save and also the power of God to sanctify. Listen to what is promised in the new covenant, even back as far as the prophet Ezekiel. God says this through the prophet Ezekiel about his last days when he will save through his son. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's the whole, that's the whole righteousness, saving, power to save. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the power of the gospel isn't just setting us back to zero, right? The power of the gospel isn't giving us a new heart with new desires, a heart that's no longer consumed by self-love. The power of the gospel is in putting God's spirit in us to cause us to walk in his ways when we would not seek those things on our own. This is the power that Paul has in mind when he says, They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. So how does self-love deny this power of the gospel? To help us with that, I want us to hear from Blaise Pascal, who was a Christian philosopher that lived quite a while ago. Listen to what he says about self-love. It's so helpful. He says this, The nature of self-love and of this human self is to love only self and consider only self. But what is it to do? It cannot prevent the object of its love from being full of faults and wretchedness. In other words, you're turning into yourself towards self-love. You can't help but see that you're actually pretty wretched. That's the problem that Pascal identifies. Continuing, quote, It wants to be great and sees that it is small. It wants to be happy and sees that it is wretched. It wants to be perfect and sees that it is full of imperfections. It wants to be the object of men's love and esteem and sees that its faults deserve only their dislike and contempt. The predicament in which it thus finds itself arouses in it the most unjust and criminal passion that could possibly be imagined. Here's how he says we react 
when we see our own wretchedness and are still filled with self-love. Listen to this. He says, It conceives a deadly hatred for the truth, which rebukes it and convinces it of its faults. In other words, I don't want to see that. It would like to do away with this truth and not being able to destroy it as such, it destroys it as best it can in the consciousness of itself and others. That is, it takes every care to hide its faults, both from itself and others, and cannot bear to have them pointed out or noticed. Self-love breeds within us, as Pascal says, a deadly hatred for the truth. Self-love will always do that because the truth is we are not very lovely. And when we turn inward and see that, we recoil in horror. See, if we are consumed with self-love, we will form a deadly hatred for the truth. And the gospel is truth. The gospel reveals our wretchedness. The gospel reveals our need for a savior. And so if we are consumed with self-love that doesn't want to see what it sees, what's our option? When the gospel truth exposes our wretchedness, we have two choices. We can repent and believe. That's what Lord willing, all of you have done. That's what Christians do. We repent and we trust the gospel. We trust the mercy of God. But if you are consumed with self-love, you will deny the power of the gospel. Instead of repenting and believing, you will recoil and you will suppress the truth. You see, at its core, self-love is suicidal self-deception. Self-love is suicidal self-deception. It will kill you because it will cause you to deny the power of the gospel. And you will look outside yourself to try to diagnose what ails you. And you will have a misdiagnosis. You will assume that it's something outside of you that is the problem. Or you will assume it's something that you haven't done well enough, that you need to do better, that is the problem. And so you will be deceived. And when the free gift of a heart transplant is offered to you, you won't want it. Because healthy people don't want new hearts. Right? You'll say, I don't need that. You'll deny the power of the gospel. That's what's happening, Paul says. In the last days, people are consumed with self-love and denying the power of the gospel. And the world stands ready with a solution. It isn't really your fault. It isn't your problem. When you look in yourself, you're not that bad. You just need to learn to love yourself a little better. You need to do a little bit more self-care. Take another day off. Take a vacation. Take a warm bath. Do something to take care of yourself and you'll feel better. And all this concerning anxiety that you're feeling because of your own awareness of your sin will go away if you just give it time. That's the solution that the world offers. Friends, that's like putting a a godliness concealer on us to to try to prevent us from seeing our own blemishes. It's foolish. It's denying the power of the gospel and it's incredible danger. For God's people. Paul wants us to be aware though. That it's not just a danger for God's people. It's bad enough. That we ourselves. Have to fight this. But Paul says. That kind of environment. Those who love. 
themselves are consumed with self-love rather than love of God and who are, have the appearance of godliness and look pretty good on the outside but are denying the power of the gospel, from among those people will arise false teachers who pray on God's people. Self-love is fertile ground for false teachers who are predatory. Look with me at verse 5 again. After Paul says they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power, he says, avoid such people for, verse 6, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. He says, these false teachers creep into households and pray on the vulnerable. He's calling out weak women here, not as a way of saying that all women are inherently weak, but he's describing these women that are preyed on by these false teachers, right? They are, they are, he says, burdened with sins, led astray with various passions, always learning, always interested in the next novelty, but never arriving at the truth, the knowledge of the truth, which is what Paul, how he summarizes coming to know the saving faith of Jesus Christ. They are always searching, but never able to find. They are vulnerable then to these false teachers. You see, back in Paul's day, as the men were out doing things in the community and working, and the women were at home, they would hire these tutors to come in and teach their kids. And these false teachers would ingratiate themselves with these ladies and get hired in to come and teach false doctrine in their homes. Teach self-love and deny the power of the gospel for these vulnerable women. This is to be expected because if we are consumed with self-love, we will inherently use others for our own gain, right? That's what these false teachers were doing. They were consumed with self-love, denying the power of the gospel, having the appearance of godliness, looking like holy men, and then they were feeding on these sheep, praying on these weak women. See, as they came in and they taught that what you really need is not repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ alone and a life of holiness. What you need is you need to learn to love yourself a little more. You need to learn to take it a little bit more easy. We read earlier that some false teachers in Ephesus were even teaching that the resurrection had already happened. So one of the things they may, be, may have been teaching is, you know what? The resurrection has already happened. You're already raised with Christ, as Paul wrote. So it doesn't really matter what you do with this physical body. Go ahead and follow all of those pleasures you want to follow. God doesn't mind. They were preying on these weak women, telling them what they wanted to hear. And what do people do when you tell them what they want to hear? They like you a lot. Right? So these false teachers were coming in obsessed with their own self-love and telling these folks what they wanted to hear. And they were getting wonderful affirmation from it. It creates this feedback loop, doesn't it? I am feeling better about myself. You're feeling better about yourself. What's the problem? We've made everybody feel better. Shouldn't that be good? Shouldn't that be our goal? But think about what was plaguing these ladies. Read that again with me. Verse, verse 6. Among them are those who creep into households and they capture weak women. And how does he describe the weak women? Burdened with sins. Led astray by various passions. 
always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. If that describes someone, and I am telling them what they want to hear, is that helping them? Is that loving them? That's offering no real hope. It's denying the power of the gospel. To bring true and lasting hope. To relieve the burden that sins lay on us. Denying the power of the gospel to free us from our enslavement to the passions of our flesh that lead us away from God. It's the power of the gospel to free us from our suicidal self-love. And these false teachers were coming in and not peddling that, but peddling something else. Friends, back in Paul's day, Paul warned Timothy that these men would be creeping into households. They were creepy. Sneaking in. Trying not to be noticed. But we're past that now. It's no longer creeping in. Our culture is so obsessed with self-love that men can stand boldly in the pulpit and proclaim a gospel message, a false gospel, of you just need to love yourself a little bit more. Rod Dreher puts it this way in his book, Live Not By Lies. He says, much of popular Christianity has become a shallow self-help cult whose chief aim is not cultivating discipleship, but rooting out personal anxieties. Friends, God forgive us. A shallow self-help cult? If that's all I have to offer you, go somewhere else. That is not hope. That's denying the power of the gospel. It may make you feel better. But it won't save a soul from hell. It won't relieve the soul burdened by sin. It won't free you from the passions that pull you away from God. You will be learning new things, but you will never arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Encouraging self-love as a solution to the burden of sin and to the passions that wage war against us is spiritual abuse. That's popular to talk about in the news today, sadly. But the spiritual abuse that most are talking about is an abuse of authority, but there's another much more subtle spiritual abuse, friends. That's offering a gospel devoid of power to a people that are perishing. And it is so dangerous because what does Paul say in verse 5? They have the appearance of godliness. These are not wicked looking people. These are nice people. These are not scary looking predators that are wearing the telltale signs of a creepy person. This is the nice person who wants you to feel good about yourself. But they are peddling a lie. We must not buy in. Ultimately, we see in verse 8 that what these teachers are opposing is the truth. Paul draws in this analogy of these two guys. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, if you look for those names in your Bible, you won't find them anywhere else. Paul was relying on Jewish tradition, which said that some of the names of the magicians that stood against Moses when he stood before Pharaoh were named Janus and Jambres. That's where Paul's getting that, and that's fine. He's drawing our attention to this story from Exodus 7 to 9. If you remember a little bit back from Sunday school, remember 
Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. And God gave them signs to show that Pharaoh should let his people, his people go, right? First, they took the staff, Aaron's staff, threw it on the ground, and it turned into snakes. And then these magicians come into the story, and they throw their staffs on the ground, and they turn into snakes. And they say, ha, see, we can do the same thing. Aaron's staff snake ate the other snakes. They should have known then, but they didn't. They stood against Moses and Aaron. They stood against God. They opposed the truth. As we follow along in the story, Moses and Aaron come and say, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And then a new plague comes on Egypt. And the magicians, they replicate the plagues. They look like they have power. They have the appearance of power. And yet they oppose the truth. And Paul wants us to know that just like them, these false teachers that have the appearance of godliness, but are denying the power of the gospel, are actually opposing the truth at its very core. They think they're saying true things, but they're actually lying and deceiving. And so Paul says they are corrupt in mind and disqualified Remember that, regarding the faith. Remember yet last week we saw... How Timothy is supposed to be one who rightly handles the word of truth. Doesn't oppose it, but rightly handles it and shows himself to be a worker approved. This here is the opposite of that. This, when, they say, when Paul says they're disqualified, he's saying they're not approved workers of the faith. These are not the kind of people Timothy wants to aspire to be. They oppose God's truth and they're disqualified. Friends, this is the danger that Paul wants Timothy to be aware of and he wants us to be aware of. This danger that exists both within ourselves to be this kind of person and within our churches to be following this kind of person or buying into this kind of false teaching. It is dangerous for God's people. And so we as God's people must respond appropriately when we see this in our midst. In this text, Paul gives three ways to respond to this kind of false teaching. Notice in verse 1, he says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Understand this. Timothy, expect this. Be aware that this is a danger. That's what Paul's doing when he's writing this. That's what we're doing today. I want you to be aware that this is a danger. And why it is so incredibly dangerous. Be aware. Not only be aware, but then in this little spot in verse 5, we have another imperative, another command for Timothy. At the end of verse 5, he says, avoid such people. We must be aware. We must avoid such people. Wisdom is needed here. Because just last chapter, we saw Paul write to Timothy, patiently endure evil. Correct your opponents with gentleness. How can Timothy do that if he's avoiding them? What we see here is the biblical reality that we try to convince and we try to compel and we try to correct opponents with gentleness and patient endurance is our, is our default. But there comes a time when a false teaching is so dangerous and so wicked that it must be removed from the church. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he says, this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 
verse 9, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Avoid them. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. This is not talking about avoiding those kind of people. But now I am writing you to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What we see in there is Paul saying, when he says avoid these people, he's talking about if there are people within the church that are teaching this false doctrine or that are living this out in such an open, high-handed way, then church discipline is the appropriate route to take. Avoid them by removing them from your midst. And it takes incredible wisdom, doesn't it, to know whether it is to patiently endure evil and to correct with gentleness, or whether the path that we're supposed to take is avoid. But friends, we need to be aware that this is something we must do. The difficulty, I think, comes most acutely, at least I feel it, in the fact that these people have the appearance of godliness. How do you tell among your people, among one another, if someone is so consumed with self-love that you ought to avoid them, as Paul is saying? If they have the appearance of godliness but are denying its power, how do you tell from the fruit of a teacher who seems nice? Three things I want us to think about. We can tell and recognize a teacher who is denying the power of the gospel by assessing what do they say is the problem. What do they say is the problem? Those who are consumed with self-love and have the appearance of godliness but deny its power will say the problem is you don't love yourself well enough. Right? But what does the Bible say the problem is? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That death is what we deserve in our sin. And therefore we are without hope in this world. We are dead according to Ephesians 2 apart from Christ. That's the problem. If the problem is that we are dead. Then the solution that we need is different. Than if the problem is that we are just feeling bad about ourselves. Right? So. What is the problem? What do they teach as the problem? Secondly, what solution do they point to? This will come out of what they teach as the problem, won't it? Those who are opposing the truth will not look to God's word for the solution to the problem. They will look to anything else. They will say, here's the problem, here's the solution. I'm not talking, friends, please hear me clearly. I want to be careful with this. I'm not talking about not seeking help in the case of mental health issues or in the case of looking for things like medication to help with anxiety and those kind of things. That's not what I'm referring to here. But a gospel preacher will tell you that anxiety medication is no more able to cure your heart of sin sickness than glasses are able to make you read. Okay, they are helpful. They're helpful tools that can help us deal with the real problem. So ask yourself, what does this teacher or what do these people identify as the real problem, the true problem at the core? And then what solution do they offer? What solution do they offer? And thirdly, what fruits do you see from them? Right? Paul gives us this list. If this is what characterizes a person, it is likely they are consumed with self-love. 
even if they have the appearance of godliness, it is likely that they are consumed with self-love and not trusting the true gospel, denying its power. Moreover, if they are gathering around them people to their teaching, who are burdened with sins and led astray by their lusts and always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, and they stay that way, you can bet they're a false teacher. So friends, what do they teach as the problem? What solution do they point to? What fruits do you see? That will help us and guide us in avoiding such people. Last, Paul says we should take heart. Verse 9, this is where I want to end today. He says they will not get very far. Verse 9. They will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You see, in the story of Exodus, as the false teachers are unable to replicate miracles that Moses and Aaron through God are doing. Eventually they can't produce gnats over all of Egypt like Moses did. And so they say, surely this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh still doesn't listen. And then later when Moses through God casts this plague of boils all over Egypt, it's the false teachers themselves who are mentioned, this magicians who are mentioned as having boils all over their skin. They're in the same miserable state as those they were trying to lead astray. They will not get very far, Paul says, because their folly will be plain to all as it was to those two men. This is incredibly encouraging for us, friends, that the folly of false teachers, the folly of those who peddle a false gospel of self-love will not get very far, but that the truth will out incrementally in this age and fully at Christ's return. This is our hope, this is our comfort, this is our confidence. And so, friends, this encourages us then to not be found among those who are foolish, but to be found among those who know the true power of God's word. To be found like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says this about himself, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of godliness. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May it be true for all of us. That our faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray.